Good early morning, everyone. <clears throat> this is John Fadul with the Geopolitics Podcast. And for many of you, it's probably early morning or perhaps afternoon when you're listening to this, but I am recording this Tuesday evening because, well, it is December and it is the time to spend with family, friends, and those close to us. And I'm choosing to spend most of my time with my wife, who is very pregnant for her first daughter. And so I've been spending a lot of my time with my with my family and my wife and taking a break from writing articles. But I did promise last Wednesday, well, yes, last Wednesday rather, that I would be coming out with a podcast the following Wednesday. And here we are. And because I want to at least keep one of my promises, I will be releasing this podcast on schedule tomorrow. But the articles will probably not return until the new year. And so the reason why I chose Brexit as my topic for this this podcast, my third podcast, is because it's also the most relevant. On January 1st of next year, right at 12.01 a.m., the U.K. is scheduled to crash out for the lack of a softer language, to crash out of the EU. And I want to discuss first the the history behind how the UK got here, what things have been done in the recent term regarding Brexit, and then finally, where do I see things going and what does that sort of look like? And so without further ado, let's start with the history of Brexit. Now, a lot of people will point to the general election of 2015, which would see, at this time, conservative leader David Cameron achieve the first majority, conservative majority government since Winston Churchill. And while this, in some respects, would be correct that it sort of started here, I would also argue that it also ignores the history of sort of anti-EU undertones that the Conservative Party had even going as far back as Margaret Thatcher. And so we're going to begin with the UK's attempt to become part of the European exchange rate mechanism, and then we'll move forward from there. So before being basically thrust from power, Margaret Thatcher made it absolutely clear when the European exchange rate mechanism sort of made its debut that the UK would not become a member of this uh, ultra-national organization that would threaten the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. And so even going far back as the early 1980s, late 1980s, there was already a rather strong undertone of anti-EU sentiment when the Germans and the French and the Italians and the Spanish were all getting together and beginning to develop the framework of what would become the European Union. And it was because of this particular stance on the EU, or at this time just the European exchange mechanism, that John Major, her deputy prime minister, would essentially, in a hostile takeover, um, have her remove this prime minister and take her place. Now... John Major became conservative leader based on the premise that he would work towards becoming part of this European community, as it was thought at this time that after going through um, essentially what, it, what would be the Thatcher Revolution, which would see the massive removal and shrinking of the, the English state, rather, in the British economy, from privatizing the coal industry, the energy sector, the, the railroads being one of the more tougher achievements under the Thatcher government. And then, of course, the very costly endeavor that was the Falklands War. And so during this period of UK, United Kingdom economic malaise, it was thought that entering into the exchange mechanism and becoming part of the EU, with this sort of proto-EU, that the UK economy could recover and become more prosperous. Unfortunately, as many economists would now agree, in hindsight, this was a rather misplaced goal by uh, Prime Minister John Major, because what was the predominant requirement of the European uh, exchange rate mechanism, the EERM, 
was that all the future EU Eurozone members, all these nations that would eventually adopt the Euro, was that they would all have to harmonia, har, harmonialize, I think is the term, or harmonize, harmonize is the word, uh, harmonize their, their monetary policy. Essentially, all of the central banks of the members of the EERM would have to match the interest rate of the strongest creditor in the EERM, which was, of course, the Germans. And so the Germans have a history of being fiscally prudent and massive savers and not large spenders. And so their central bank interest rate was rather high, so high that when the UK joined the EERM, the UK economy, which was already in this sort of quasi-stagnation, sort of proto-recessionary path, would immediately be forced into a steep and horrifying recession that would see the UK uh, economy contract pretty significantly and European unemployment jump above 10%. And this was between 1980 and... um, I don't want to get the dates wrong, so I'm going to backtrack on those dates. Um, But during this period... Um, from basically 1990 through 1992, the UK economy would contract pretty heavily, unemployment would spike, and we'd see the first indications of industry sort of offshoring from the United Kingdom. And it was this very rather tough move of basically forcing the 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 bank of the United Kingdom to raise interest rates so steeply that would cause the run on the pound as speculators such as George Soros and many other bankers were correct to assume that the consequences of this massive hike in the interest rate were not sustainable. And so the Bank of England would either have to consistently uh, defend the pound by buying up pounds from the market, which the central bank did, uh, 6 billion pounds worth, which at this time was a pretty significant um, hefty sum of money to defend the pound. And eventually... As George Soros rightly um, deduced, the UK would be forced to crash out of the EERM and forced to cut interest rates. As the Germans, being the Germans, were unwilling to either cut their interest rate to grant the UK some um, relief in the form of interest rates, and or the Germans were unwilling to give the UK a waiver to, for a temporary period of time. <clears throat> suspend their requirements to match the interest rate of the Germans and allow them to cut back for a while before increasing, allowing for some economic recovery and some stabilization of the pound. And because the Germans weren't willing to give, the UK would be forced to crash out. And so the, George Soros would walk away making a lot of money because essentially he shorted the pound. And so after crashing out the ERM, the UK pound would weaken further Uh, But the central bank would stop defending the pound, allowing the currency to crash for a bit and eventually correct at a more stabilized level and then eventually recover. And the UK economy, because it had gone through this such prolonged period of of demand destruction and creative destruction, the economy would eventually recover at a much stronger point. So arguably, besides this sort of two, three years of recessionary period and arguably depression, um, the UK would actually come out stronger in this process. But as a result, um, John Major would eventually lose his leadership in 1995 when he was challenged by Tony Blair. And so, but I think the consensus that came out of that massive recessionary period of 1990 through 1992 was that no government would be willing to touch the issue of EU or Euro ascension to the point where it would sort of bring us to this crisis today. And so... Let's talk about the governments that eventually sort of transitioned. Um, John Major, um, despite falling out of the EERM, the European Exchange Rate Mechanism, he would actually achieve a somewhat slimmer majority in his his, uh, his election in 1993, um, but would be forced to call another election in 1995, which would see the rise of Tony Blair this um, sort of moderate labor member who would rebrand the labor party from being a sort of socialist, um, very social Democrat party to something more like the centrist Democrats that were used to the United States. It was coined new labor. 
And so when Tony Blair won his election, uh, Tony Blair basically said that unless the UK economy met five economic tests, which would be um, certified by the central bank and the exchequer, that the um, that he would not put up the question of adopting the euro as the UK currency until those five tests were met, and then he would put it up to a referendum. Uh, but because the threshold for all these tests were so high, Tony Blair was effect- effectively able to clear himself of being forced into coming to terms with the euro question because he had essentially put the issue aside by making the, the tests to pass so high, which was very clever and sort of speaks to Tony Blair as being a very um, politically aware politician with the exception of the Iraq war um, and the subsequent economic malaise that came out of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, This would eventually see Tony Blair um, almost get um, Thatcher in the same way. Thatcher got removed by John Major, where Gordon Brown, who had was also um, Tony Blair's deputy prime minister, was always known from the 2000 period to 2007 when he eventually took power from Tony Blair, that he was always aspiring for the prime ministership. And so in that hostile takeover in 2007, Gordon Brown would effectively discard the issue altogether of ascending to as being a formal member of the Eurozone because the UK fell into this sort of quasi-territory where it was part of the Eurozone, which was basically all the members who used the Euro, but wasn't technically because it still used the pound. And so Gordon Brown would just remove the five economic tests altogether and essentially punt the issue of Euro adoption further as being part of the Eurozone requires eventual adoption of the um, the Euro, the currency. Um, but he was able to basically delay the adoption of the euro further and further back and this was would be something that david cameron would do in the 2000 let me get i want to make sure i get my dates right because the dates are important and i don't want to get called out on this okay so it's what i thought so gordon brown in 2009 would be considered broadly unpopular after um the consequences of the basically bailing out most of the of the banks that were involved in heavy heavy mortgage buying, very similar to the United States banks. And so uh, he, essentially what happens to most prime ministers is that eventually they call a general election, which is a referendum on their, their leadership, and Gordon Brown's labor lost, which led to the rise of the youngest um, conservative leader in conservative party history, David Cameron, to win a, a uh, minority government which in coalition with the Lib Dems were able to achieve a, a majority. And it would be decided um, that as part of this coalition government that basically the continuation of the, the the Brown Doctrine, for lack of a better term, would be just to essentially push back Euro adoption further and further back to where um, before the Brexit referendum, the Euro was expected to be adopted by the United Kingdom by 2025. And so obviously, in 2015, when the the another general election was called by David Cameron after the collapse of the um, conservative Lib Dem coalition, this was a pretty distant um, deadline. And so, with most politicians, if they can sort of punt the deadline further and further back, they're like, "Okay, I expect to be leader this long, and so I can punt it back this far because eventually I'm not going to be a leader anymore, and so I won't have to deal with this problem." Um, the problem is, is that in 2015, when the Lib Dem um, conservative coalition collapsed, David Cameron was essentially forced to run to the right because what became a very contentious issue was the issue of official European membership, something that was championed by um, the United Kingdom Independence Party, the UKIP party, led by Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage is this sort of um, interesting character in British politics because he's always been sort of in the background being the anti-European voice and leading this sort of obscure um, right-wing party UKIP that had never really gotten any traction. But in 2015, after the, the Euro crisis with 
Greece and all the bailouts that came out of the European Union between 2012 and 2014, the European Union's popularity in the, in the, um, the UK tanked considerably as the Europeans basically asked the United Kingdom, despite not really being part of the Eurozone because they didn't use the Euro, they were basically forced to contribute to the bailout fund. And so on this back of unpopular EU momentum, um, Nigel Farage was in some polls taking up to 20 to 30% of the vote, which would have obviously cannibalized a large portion of the conservative majority that Cameron was aiming to get. And so in order to sort of fight off Nigel Farage's attempt to get into parliament, David Cameron promised in the 2015 campaign to have a Brexit, a Brexit referendum that would decide the issue of UK membership in the Eurozone as a functional member that will eventually adopt the Euro. And so because of this promise, David Cameron won the first conservative majority in the largest conservative majority and first conservative majority government, not only since John Major, um, but also since um, the times of Winston Churchill. And so after this very popular victory, it was assumed that the United Kingdom would not vote yes to Brexit. Um, but because of this decision to have the referendum, um, David Cameron would only be in office essentially for a year and a half as the Brexit referendum would decide um, 52 to 48 to leave the EU. And so David Cameron, I think rightfully so, saw the writing on the wall and said, because I was an avid campaigner of to stay, that I am no longer fit to leave because what the party is going to need is a government that is pro-leave. And so Cameron would resign which would begin a very contentious leadership election where Boris Johnson was assumed uh, to be the primary contender for for a prime minister. Um, but after several very conservative members entered the race before Boris Johnson, they essentially took all of his momentum out. And so Boris would decide not to contest the leadership election leading to an internal party split, leaving, um, I believe, Housing Secretary Theresa May to become the leader of the Conservative Party, the first female leader of the Conservative Party since Thatcher, and so far the second leader of the United Kingdom to ever be a woman. And so Theresa May, who was sort of a lukewarm EU remainer, would be essentially elected to manage the UK's exit out of the European Union. And so a lot of people right from the get-go rightly assumed that this was going to be a disaster. And after seeing her cabinet, which she formed after she won her leadership contest, that, that sort of concern right, rightfully reflected itself because it was a mixture of remainers and leave. Um, proponents, people who want to remain in the EU and people who want to leave. And so as a result, the only major thing Theresa May ever accomplished in regards to Brexit is allowing Nigel Farage to submit the application for Article 50, which was Article 50 is this sort of nebulous um, regulation which requires um, any nation that is contemplating leaving the EU must submit an Article 50 application notifying the European Council that this nation is beginning the exit process from the European Union and the Eurozone in particular. And then from that point forward, uh, Theresa May would encounter problems getting a plan to begin the exit process past her parliament, which would eventually lead to Theresa May calling an early general election in 2017 in an attempt to expand Cameron's David Cameron's majority that he achieved in 2015. Um, but because Theresa May 
was sort of elected leader of the conservative party in the internal election on sort of this mixed mandate um to use a very old turner phrase she got she lost sight of the forest in favor of the grass as her campaign got bogged down by unpalatable conservative manifesto issues constructed by a rather incompetent campaign team um some of these issues were legalizing fox hunting which is this sort of I wouldn't say a taboo issue, but it's sort of a sort of caricature conservative issue that only affects like very rich conservative members as fox hunting is popular with the rich in England. Um, and as a result, they looked out of touch by proposing legalizing fox hunting. Um, the second thing was including the what's known as the dementia tax, would which would effectively require um, UK... Um, citizens who are affected by dementia to handle a larger portion of their dementia treatment as dementia is a terminal illness that can only be slowed down by heavy medication. And so as a dementia um, patient is effectively a permanent um, source of strain on the UK healthcare system, it's sort of in a very brutally... Um, pragmatic fashion to require these patients to take up a larger proportion of their care as the NHS struggles from basically providing adequate care to everyone and so is basically forced forced to ration everything. And that's obviously a conversation for later in this podcast while I talk about the future trade deal with the United States. Um, But the dementia tax was predominantly seen as insensitive and evil and so Theresa May suffered from that as well. And then three, talking about reforming the NHS, which is a notorious third rail issue um, in the United Kingdom as the NHS, despite how ineffective and inefficient it is, is predominantly seen as a sort of standout UK feature that people take pride in. And so As a result of this complicated manifesto, um, what should have been a very simple election um, that Boris Johnson would later learn from, um, a lot of people lost sight of the, the goal of Theresa May's government, which was Brexit. And so she ran on traditional sort of old-fashioned conservative party issues and as a result nearly lost the election to Jeremy Corbyn. Now, Jeremy Corbyn is a very well-known member of the Labour Party, known for his sort of socialistic tendencies and his reputation for um, rather unscrupulous meetings with very popular um, um, segments of the socialist leanings of the Labour Party, such as Hugo Chavez and um, Fidel Castro. And so Jeremy Corbyn rightly saw that he could possibly win a minority government if he just ran as sort of a a, uh, a Tony Blair, if you would, as he ran as sort of a moderate liberal Democrat, which allowed him to basically run on a platform that was just not Theresa May, which allowed him to almost achieve a slim majority um, of basically with 30 seats away from becoming the majority government in the United Kingdom, or at least being forced to make a coalition with the liberal Democrats. And so Theresa May, despite losing this, not winning this election barely, but losing David Cameron's supermajority, remained in power until mid-2018 as as what is traditional in um, British politics is that if you if you lose an election, you're thrust from you're you're thrust from power or replaced with someone else who can run a better campaign in the next general election. Um, But because she didn't lose the majority, Uh, but became the minority government unwilling to form a coalition of anyone else, she was able to barely retain power. And so she would spend 2017 through mid-2018 attempting to push an exit deal through the parliament. Um, But what ended up happening is that not only did her plan for exit get voted down multiple times by even elements of her own party plus the agitating um, Labour Party, who was very eager to have another general election where they could possibly take power if Theresa May was put up for re-election again. Um, 
the parliament would eventually wrestle power away from her where um, conservative hardliners on Brexit combined with the Labour Party would vote to take power of negotiating a Brexit deal away from Theresa May, which would lead to this massive mess of the Conservative Party um, putting alternate exit plans up for for votes that weren't even negotiated with the EU, and then the Labour Party would even get some of their um, plans put up for votes, which were going to be sunk anyways. The, the Conservatives would conveniently at that time line up against the the, the Labour Party along with some Liberal Democrat defectors. Um, but this would ultimately be the death knell of Theresa May, which would lead to an internal leadership election where Boris Johnson, finally seizing the opportunity to jump into the race early, would be selected to be the Conservative leader. And in um, late 2019, he would call for a general election in December. And because he learned from Theresa May's horrible campaign in 2015, in 2017, he ran strictly on Brexit with the slogan, get Brexit done, straight and simple. And because of this very simple message, he ran on issues that would appeal to the Labour Party's working party base, which obviously has seen most of its work um, taken overseas to places um, where the United States has often seen offshoring occur, such as China, Vietnam, um, the Philippines, Indonesia, and and in some cases even um, Eastern Europe, and so as a result, um, Boris Johnson would win the largest majority um, the Conservative Party has ever had since 1932, um, get, cementing his mandate to, as his campaign said, get Brexit done. And so, where are we now? So after Boris Johnson won his supermajority government in 2019. He would push through um, an almost identical version of Theresa May's exit plan. And so, obviously, voting down Theresa May's plan was more about punishing Theresa May for running a horrible campaign in 2017. Um, but what this exit plan would effectively do is it would allow the United Kingdom to stay in the EU for about, uh, for effectively a full year, um, which would require them to obviously obey EU regulations, but it wouldn't make them um, immune from any EU judicial decisions at the EU Supreme Court level. Um, and so this would only last a year. And so it was broadly assumed that Boris Johnson would begin in negotiations immediately. And I think that's what Boris Johnson effectively assumed too. The problem is, is that um, the coronavirus crisis, which would sweep um, the UK later than the United States or even most of Europe um, in basically April of this year, which would basically force Boris Johnson to effectively mothball any negotiations with the EU as the the UK was effectively forced to focus singly on containing the spread, um, instituting massive um, stimulus and job support programs, effectively nationalizing the entire payroll of the United Kingdom in order to keep unemployment low and to keep people paid and quote unquote at work. And so serious EU negotiations wouldn't start up again until September. But even then, um, one could even say the UK was still distracted as uh, the Boris Johnson government and even Boris Johnson himself was truly only elected to get Brexit done. And so when his cabinet, which was primarily staffed with people who were trained, or not trained because no one's trained for Brexit, but people who were effectively born to um, to get Brexit done. I, I wouldn't even say people are born to get Brexit done either, but to leave it short and simple, people who were at the right place at the right time, the people needed to get Brexit through to negotiate with people in the Conservative Party to get a deal that could clear Parliament with the EU through. And so when you have that sort of cabinet mismatch where you have people who can get trade deals done, but people who can't manage a uh, pandemic correctly, you're going to have a lot of not ideal outcomes. Um, at, at best, you can hope for is mediocre performance. Um, but as the Boris Johnson's ability, Boris Johnson government's ability to react to this crisis have shown, um, the worst that can happen is that you can handle it poorly. And that's what sort of occurred. 
And so even then, even when negotiations, serious negotiations started up again in September, they weren't taken seriously because you're still prioritizing the coronavirus crisis, which I think I wouldn't necessarily say is the wrong decision to make. Um, but when the outcome of Brexit is so crucially important to the UK economy, it's not the best decision either to ignore negotiations either. And so you've had this sort of ad hoc, um, sort of mismatched attempt to negotiate with the EU that has only gotten serious at the mid to latter end of November, which as a result, we've seen negotiations with the EU um, quote unquote reset at least I think five times um, as of last Sunday. And as a result, it's the EU negotiations have sort of boiled down to, to these sort of three sour points, which are um, fisheries, um, how large is the um, the United Kingdom's exclusive economic zone for fisheries, and how much does the EU, how much liberty do EU um, fishing vessels from Spain, France, um, the Netherlands, like how much access do these other nations have to EU um, to UK fishing waters? And so, and the second thing is um, what is known as level playing field regulations, which effectively stipulates that um, the United Kingdom needs to comply with all regulations, obviously, um, but will be required to obey any future regulations that the EU Parliament and EU Commissioner agree on. And so you effectively end up in the same place the EU, the UK is now, um, except with the third thing, which has been the obstacle to um, getting a deal done is the issue of EU court jurisdiction over the United Kingdom. And so any EU deal that um, Michael Bernier has ever brought up, who is the, the, chief, the chief EU negotiator, is that you will effectively be forced to give up a large percentage of your fishing waters to EU jurisdiction, required to hand over most of your regulatory powers to the EU, uh, but also be fully under the power of the EU court system, but you will have no representation in the EU Parliament. And I think anyone could easily deduce these are not very good terms um, for the United Kingdom. And so over the past two weeks in particular, the issue of fisheries has been the predominant um, issue as current um, conditions right now have the EU controlling 85% of UK fishing waters or at least having access to 82% of UK fishing waters. And as part of these sort of renewed, quote-unquote renewed negotiations, the EU has lowered their jurisdiction to 75%. And as a result, you get to sort of the conversation of what is likely to happen. And what I think is likely to happen is what I think many people in my community have assumed is that um, a hard Brexit of exiting crashing out the EU rather is the likely result as agreeing to any of these three um, sort of third rail issues, these sort of political killers um, would almost immediately see Boris Johnson um, after getting the deal pushed through parliament because I think he, he could get the deal pushed through um, even if it was politically unpopular. Um, but almost immediately after the deal was okayed, if he had agreed to this these terms as they are now, um, he would likely be removed from leader leadership almost immediately. Um, but if he survived a leadership challenge, um, he would almost certainly lose the general election to um, to Sturmier. Um, I could probably not say his name right, um, but the new Labor Party leader who is sort of a pivot back to um, new Labor's more moderate take on politics. And so I do not think it's likely um, because Boris Johnson is much of a bumbling buffoon that he sort of plays as on the media and in EU in a in UK politics in particular he is a very smart politician he's not Trump in that way um Boris Johnson has a very working class presentation but he's very much upper class gentry educated and a very politically intelligent animal he is strong in all the things David Cameron was not. Um, David Cameron was a bit politically naive, while Boris Johnson has broadly reflected that he isn't. 
And so because Boris Johnson is very politically aware and knows that um, any of these terms that the EU is presenting are political poison pills, I think it's very likely he would rather go through a hard Brexit than go through a Canada-style trade deal, which would see the United Kingdom effectively neutered. And so let's move on to um, the next segment, which I'm calling um, Brexit Means Brexit and the Canada deal. Um, Let's start with the Canada deal, as I think it's the least likely, and so this segment will be pretty short. Um, What does a Canada trade deal look like? Um, So you would see roughly 90 to 98% of EU tariffs removed, but required compliance with all EU regulations and all future regulations. Um, Even now, after a decade of negotiation, the Canada deal, despite being ratified as all EU members have implemented it, it has not been enforced yet. And so despite everything that has happened with the Canada deal, um, Canada is effectively not trading yet on the terms that the Canada deal has sort of laid out. And this was all okayed in, I think, mid to early 2019. So it's been a year plus now since that deal has been agreed upon. Um, But this deal is still guarded by level playing field regulations, which basically, as I mentioned before, agrees that everyone follows one set of rules, all the rules which are determined by the EU. And so this deal effectively prevents the United Kingdom from acquiring any free trade agreement with all other nations that don't have a trade agreement with the European Union, as the regulatory threshold is so high, it effectively prevents the United Kingdom from achieving trade deals with nations that it's pushing forward to get trade deals with. Um, Former um, Commonwealth nations, such as um, India, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, um, Malaysia, Burma, and all these other nations that are sort of on the UK wish list of future trade partners, which could help um, alleviate some of the economic uh, decline that could come out of a Brexit deal. Um, But the more important nation that effectively stops the UK from negotiating with is the United States. And the United States has been the primary target of UK trade negotiators, um, mostly because it is the only remaining um, consumer market around the world. It has the healthiest demographic of all the um, first world or Western westernized nations. And so it will be continuing to be a large source of capital and consumption, which it, the UK, which is looking to reinvigorate its um, industrial base and become a sort of world leader again after leaving the EU um, as a predominant target for future trade negotiations. Um, but as um, current U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer rightfully warned um, Boris Johnson when they attempted to negotiate with the Trump administration in, this year and early twenty in late 2019, um, if you have a trade deal with the EU, it will be very hard, if not impossible, to get a deal with the United States because um, despite how bloated um, the U.S. regulatory system is in the eyes of Americans, it is a broadly deregulated environment compared to Europe. And so if you agree to a trade deal with the EU, which requires you to follow 98 to 99% of all EU regulations and all future regulations to come, you effectively block yourself from becoming a trade partner with the United States, which forces you to trade under what's known as WTO regulations, which um, while allows for smaller tariff um, regulations on uh, non-agricultural goods, so your manufactured goods, your cars, your steel, your your minerals, all the, the fun stuff, um, but broadly has massive agricultural tariffs of upwards of 35 to 180% on agricultural goods. And so considering how dominant um, U.S. agriculture is around the world, and how dominant the United States, even manufacturing, as much as politicians like to say American manufacturing instead, it's still very dominant in the form of car manufacturing and um, upper level additive manufacturing as well. Um, it becomes very hard um, for the United States to achieve a trade deal, even with the EU, 
because the regulatory barriers are so much higher. And so a Canada deal, which would allow the UK to sort of remain where it is, it effectively cuts it off from all other opportunities around the world. And so even though in the short run, it looks politically advantageous to achieve this deal, in the long term, it's not very good. And so that brings me to the more likely scenario, which is, um, as I coined it, Brexit means Brexit. Um, a very sort of catchy phrase that Theresa May used after she became leader of the Conservative Party, ironically. Um, but let's move on. Um, the UK falling out of the EU has surprisingly not been priced in um, by foreign exchange markets or the UK um, stock markets in general. As many people assume in the investment community and just normal people in general is that a deal can and will be achieved, which is sort of this this historical ignorance which is reflected by people where people just assume it's impossible and so they don't prepare for it. Um, the one I always like to refer to is World War One, where you could almost see all the players in place, um, the heightened tensions, the, the, the French wanting to get back at the Germans for um, back-to-back defeats, um, the Austrians looking to expand further in the Balkans, specifically at Serbia. Tensions were already at the right place to kick off a war. But people just assumed that because at this time in world history, the world had become so globalized and so dependent on one another that war was impossible. Um, but all it took was one one Serb in Sarajevo to shoot one Austrian prince for the entire continent and the, the entire world um, to, to be enveloped in war, the First World War. And so this sort of ignorance has been repeated on and on through history as people just assume that the costs of very traumatic scenarios is so high that people won't allow it to happen despite numerous historical examples where that has occurred. Um, and so as a result, um, the pound has strengthened throughout the entire Brexit debacle. Um, it's now trading at um, one pound for every dollar 35, which is 35 cents stronger compared to the dollar. Um, when the UK crashes out the EU, I expect that to approach uh, sort of one-to-one parity, where one pound equals one dollar, if not fall somewhere um, below that, to where um, it takes more pounds to get one dollar. And so that that will be, I think, the initial traumatic shock. Um, the United Kingdom economy, which is already looking like it's primed for a double-dip recession with this new coronavirus variant um, hitting its shores in the the EU broadly. Um, Brexit will effectively force it into a definitely a double dip recession, which will likely see the pound weaken further as Boris Johnson embraces an enormous fiscal stimulus to reinvigorate the economy. Um, massive reshoring efforts, which would subsidize um, um, UK companies to reshore most of their manufacturing onto the United Kingdom shores. Um, and massive naval buildup, which has already been announced by Boris Johnson, but he is likely going to commit more capital and shorten timelines to have the um the royal fleet to return to its um pre-cold war level um the the end of cold war um post cold war levels rather of between 200 and 300 ships where it sits right now it's beneath 150 and so getting above that 200 to 300 goal is where boris johnson has sort of laid his eyes on but i believe he'll probably put more money into shortening timelines and expanding manufacturing and shipbuilding as that's one of the easier ways to um, re-stimulate the economy and bring old manufacturing jobs to UK shores and also restore um, English competency in shipbuilding, which has sort of become um, necrotic and decayed during this um, sort of 30-year globalized time period between the end of the Cold War 1991 up to modern day. And then... um, go forward with a massive wind turbine effort. Um, A lot of people make fun of this um, effort, mostly because um, renewables, I think rightfully for most places, are seen as boondoggles. Um, But because of the United Kingdom's location on the North Sea, 
it has pr- is in prime real estate for continuous um, wind sourced power, which could replace baseload capacity, which is provided by coal, natural gas, and um, nuclear. Most of that is imported, which would help the UK um, balance its books rather and reduce its trade deficit and dependence on foreign sources of fuel. Um, and this is also likely all going to happen within the first year of, well, the first year of Brexit, but also in 2021 in general. And a lot of these efforts would be to sort of be a bridge during the young, the one-year time period that the ascending Biden administration has sort of laid out. Um, during uh, Boris Johnson's congratulatory call with, um, with Mr. Biden, President Biden rather, um, Joe Biden made it very clear that all of 2021 will essentially be focused on solving American domestic issues, getting the economy back on track, and defeating the coronavirus. Which makes sense because that's broadly what um, Joe Biden ran on in the 2020 campaign for the presidency. And so this massive stimulus effort, which is likely to come, will help bridge that economic gap where the UK and the United States will still be trading on WTO rules and its former largest trading partner, the EU, will be trading on the same terms. Um, But Boris Johnson is likely during this time to push um, the Biden administration and the Biden team in general to shorten that time period to six to nine months as um, the significant weakening of the pound and the likely continued economic turmoil in the UK through 2021 will likely force um, Biden to cave on that year timeline a lot sooner as the the quote-unquote special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom is important to Joe Biden, uh, but not important enough to not make an example of Boris Johnson, mostly because part of the reason why that year timeline was laid out so early is a reflection of the Obama administration's attitudes towards Brexit originally as um, President Obama through, at that time, um, Secretary of State John Kerry told um, David Cameron that if you voted for Brexit, you would be at the end of the line for any possible future trade agreement. And so despite Biden wanting to be his own man and cement his own legacy as president, um, I think some of that attitude is going is, has and will carry over during this um, first year of Brexit in 2021. Um, but because, as I mentioned, the economic turmoil, I think he will cave a lot sooner. Um, but because of this economic turmoil, um, it will put the United States, which will be um, also very likely entering a stagnation period where the economy is not going to grow, but it's not going to go into recession, or what I think is more likely a small but still not very lovely set, uh, double-dip recession as well, the United States economy will still being the, the stronger economic position. And so when Biden likely caves um, as soon as August or as late as October of next year, there are a couple of sectors of the economy that are going to be targeted in the UK for essentially carved up for for the United States to come in and take its place. And those four sectors are the banks, agriculture, oil and gas, and the third rail issue no one likes to touch is the NHS. And so let's begin with the banks. The United Kingdom's position as the second sort of second stop shop compared to Wall Street has only been achieved because of its precarious position of being a part of the Eurozone without using the Euro as its currency. This unique position allowed them to become an offshore source of dollars for the EU without Eurozone members interact having to interact directly with the United States Federal Reserve or the U.S. banking system more broadly. This is known as the Euro-dollar market, and that uh, market, the United Kingdom, has essentially had a monopoly um, control over or a dominant position in. A hard Brexit scenario would see a, likely a quarter of the U.K. financial system leave for Frankfurt or Brussels as um, European banks find it just easier to do EU business within EU borders, um, while the other half of the UK banking system would likely be forfeit in a US trade deal. 
as not only will UK banks prefer the safety of the United States dollar, but also the certainty of United States um, regulators overseeing them, but also the power of the Federal Reserve to backstop them and access to the Federal Reserve window for emergency lending. And so because of that more friendlier, more consistent business environment and the guarantees of the United States Federal Reserve, the UK banking system is likely to lose um, three-fourths of its total size, leaving just a quarter within the the um, UK and, and broader. Um, but on the business front, we're likely to see a lot of American banks enter the UK market to compete on consumer growth, um, consumer services, credit cards, mortgages, all the traditional stuff U.S. banks do in the United States. Um, because, but in general, because U.S. banks are have stronger capital positions, um, and just in general. Um, are healthier coming out of the 2008 financial crisis than the UK banks, they're likely to effectively colonize the UK banking system, leaving what few and remaining UK banks very, very um, vulnerable to United States competition. And so we can move to agriculture. Um, The UK isn't necessarily a large source of um, agricultural production, um, but it's significant enough to where they got um, access to extensive EU agricultural subsidies, um, which allowed them to be, uh, um, which allowed um, un- uncompetitive and inefficient UK farmers to sell in a captive market, the EU, where they only had to compete against equally subsidized French, Dutch, and Italian agricultural counterparts. Um, with the, e- U- the UK no longer receiving these subsidies, the government under Boris Johnson has essentially agreed to provide the same level of subsidies um, from the general fund, even though it's no longer receiving them from the EU. Um, but any deal that sees um, the UK and uh, the United States enter a trade agreement, um, the United Kingdom is going to realize very quickly something that the Canadians realized when um, the NAFTA was being nego- renegotiated under the Trump administration, in that the one way they could become part of the NAFTA system or stay within the NAFTA system or achieve a a trade deal um, was breaking the one taboo every Canadian prime minister and every what's going to be every UK prime minister has tried to avoid. And that's opening um, their uncompetitive farmers to United States competition. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau effectively gave up the Quebecois dairy farmers to US competition, um, which has been great for states like um, Wisconsin and Minnesota, but not so good for the Quebecois. Um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to likely face the same fate. And so um, the jokes about chlorinated chicken are likely to become mainstays of the UK tabloid press and jokes in UK circles for quite some time as um, very price competitive US producers come to dominate um, UK um, farming sectors and just produce markets in general. And so we can move to oil and gas. Um, Oil and gas is a particularly sensitive issue for the Biden administration as um, the oil state of Pennsylvania and um, Michigan are swing states in a 2024 general election where Biden is expected not to run for re-election, but his vice president, Kamala Harris, is expected to run. And so the important states of Pennsylvania and Michigan are going to be important for the 2024 election. And so even though Democrats in general are less friendly to oil, um, they're going to be a little softer on regulating oil and gas because those states are so critically needed um, in the 2024 election. And so what we're likely going to see is conditions on the United Kingdom requiring broad access to United States shale and gas producers. but to touch on the UK oil and gas sector in particular, um, from 1970 through 2004, the North Sea provided all the oil, gas, oil and gas the United Kingdom needed, essentially bankrolling most of the Thatcher reforms and allowing them to be broadly energy independent up till 2004, until the North Sea oil and gas fields reached peak production and started declining pre- precipitously in 2000 until 2005, where the UK became a net importer of all energy sources, oil, gas, coal, and anything else the nation is needed, um, with most of the business going to Norway, all their um, oil imports anyway. 
um, under a trade deal, more price competitive shale and oil gas producers will likely um, get unfettered access to um, United Kingdom consumers and manufacturers, um, but largely produced the uh, but largely pushed the Norwegians out of the UK market, and likely to see many um, North Sea producers start to shuttering or mothballing their offshore facilities. Um, but because the Biden administration is not friendly, not as friendly to oil. Um, I think it's possible that some of these concessions could be rolled back a bit, allowing the United Kingdom to subsidize North Sea oil, or at least maintain North Sea oil as a por- portion of their energy portfolio um, under national security reasons. And then finally, we touch on um, the NHS. The NHS, as I've mentioned before, is this sort of sacred cow of UK politics, a third rail um, taboo issue no one likes to touch because it's a political killer. Um, despite the NHS generating worse outcomes and worse performance than any other single payer system in the world, um, even compared to Canada, France, and Germany, um, and in, the, in the Canadian system is the butt of all jokes in at least in North American continent in general, um, the NHS performs still considerably worse compared to the Canadian system. Um, but despite all of that, the NHS is a great source of national pride and praise. And you've seen a lot of that in the coronavirus crisis where the um, five minutes of, of clapping uh, during segments of the evening became sort of popularized early in the coronavirus crisis. Um, but as a result of this sort of sacred cow um, protections and sort of nostalgia around the NHS, it has made reforming the NHS or at least changing the system in a piecemeal fashion uh, nearly impossible and leads to substantial political backlash and, if not, ruins election prospects in the next general election. However, any deal with the United States will require reforming how the NHS acquires and purchases American-produced and developed drugs. Due to the lack of enforcing United States IP protections, the NHS can effectively force producers to offer the same drug for a fraction of the cost, effectively forcing R&D expenses to be pushed exclusively on American consumers instead of distributed evenly across everyone that consumes American pharmaceutical products. Under the Trump administration, part of the NAFTA reforms saw this addressed directly where American IP protections on pharmaceuticals are now mandated in Canada and Mexico. Increasing prices for Mexican and Canadian consumers and alleviating, alleviating some price pressures on American consumers. I expect this enforcement mechanism to be demanded by U.S. trade negotiators as not only is the protection of American intellectual property a bipartisan issue, but alleviating any pharmaceutical price pressures on U.S. consumers is a winning issue in general. Um, but the Biden administration is likely to face many of the same issues with um, insurance companies as Obama did when negotiating the Affordable Care Act, or better known as Obamacare. Um, as Obamacare was originally envisioned as a single-payer system for America, but later became something similar to a the Mitt Romney plan, which was implemented in Massachusetts when um, Mitt Romney, or Governor Romney at the time, was governor of Massachusetts, which had health insurers at the center of the solution and not the creator of the problem. And so the Biden administration is likely going to be forced to curry the same level of favors for insurance companies as the Obama administration was forced to curry as well. And so we're likely going to see a pretty substantial dismantling of the NHS, allowing um, American pharmaceutical companies to compete directly in the United Kingdom for providing private care. Um, which would be incredibly nasty and unprecedented in UK politics. Um, But Boris Johnson may be forced to agree to those terms because the ability to sell into the United States market is so valuable to an economy like the UK um, that they'll be forced to agree to it anyway. And so that sort of... In within an hour, because right now we're at a 59 minutes and 26 seconds, um, it's sort of an hour synopsis of the history, um, the current happenings, and what I believe is going to happen in the future for Brexit. And I think what we're likely going to see in the next couple of days, as this is being recorded on the 23rd, 
between the 23rd and the 31st, we're likely going to see some positive headlines that we've seen repeated over the past two weeks of a deal is around the corner. The The path to a deal is narrow but achievable, something that uh, Barnier has been saying and something that um, the president of the EU commission has have been um, repeating pretty consistently um, in order to sort of boost markets. Um, but I do not believe... Um, I think that rhetoric is likely to change um, this weekend when the ability to force a deal through the parliament, the UK parliament, and through the EU, all 27 EU members, uh, effectively falls to zero. As what the Canadians realized in uh, 2017 through 2018 when their deal was being finalized was that it requires all 27 of the EU members to agree on a deal. And so... The Canadian deal failed to be ratified two times because the Dutch didn't like the vulnerabilities that the Canadian agricultural producers had against Dutch producers. And so as a result, until those stipulations were changed to be more friendly to the Dutch, the Dutch vetoed the deal twice. And so on the third attempt, the Dutch finally um, abstained from voting and allowing the, the, the trade deal to become um, into into force or at least enter the enforcement phase. Um, but even now, the Canadian deal is not implemented um, despite being ratified. And so I think even when the e, the, all 27 members are forced to vote on something within a short time frame, it still took them three months of sustained negotiations to get a bailout and stimulus agreement through the EU Parliament and into the EU budget. And the UK does not have that kind of time. And the EU is probably more for, focused on maintaining political unity um, when national interests and national politics are becoming more and more important within the EU proper. And so the EU is likely going to decide that it's willing to bear the economic burden of a no-deal Brexit in order to achieve and maintain the short-term goal of political unity. Um, but that's all going to come at the cost of the United Kingdom in general and in particular. And so the, the rhetoric on the deal is like going to change this weekend as people begin to realize that there's just not enough time to get a deal through. And with Boris Johnson effectively ruling out any future negotiations going into the new year, um, you're likely going to see more talk next week of the UK making public its plans for no-deal Brexit, which have been in the um, drawing-up phase for most of the year, as the, the Telegraph and all the other major UK publications have been sort of releasing hints that these deals are being planned and that expectations of no-deal should still be in the cards. Um, but even with all those little hints, um, markets have broadly not been um, pricing that in and so i think markets are likely to react more poorly next week which we could see affect um, even u.s markets in general as the uk financial system still has major counterparties in the united states and so that could be a major factor major driver of markets next week um, but when i'm thinking of topics for my next podcast, which may come out next Wednesday on the 30th, or I might just wait till um, January 6th. Um, but a couple of things are on my mind. Uh, one, sort of the spree of activity going on in the Chinese um, corporate space with the default of mass, pretty massive um, state-owned corporate champions, um, like their coal companies and automobile companies and their chip manufacturers in general, all these companies are sort of critical to the China 2025 idea. Um, but also maybe just talking about America politics and what do I see next? Who are, what states are the standout states for the 2022 midterms? Or just maybe talk about the um, Republican primary in 2024, whether um, Trump will announce a reelection campaign. And if not, who are the um, likely Republican candidates, like at least competitive candidates for a Republican primary in 2024. Um, so a lot to think about. 
But I would like to thank everyone for tuning in for the third episode of my geopolitics podcast. And I look forward to talking to all of you again very soon. Good night, sweet dreams. Enjoy time with family, especially with how tough this year has been. Be grateful for everything that has been maintained in our lives and appreciate everything that remains consistent. And as, as I mentioned, and I think the first or second episode, um, family is one of the few groups of people in your life that genuinely wants to see you succeed. Family is so important. And so remember your families uh, this upcoming Christmas and this upcoming New Year. And to share some of my goals for the upcoming New Year, so my New Year's promise is to start working out again. Um, the, the COVID weight gain has affected us all, including yours truly, despite how much I have fought against it uh, this year. So my 2021 20, New Year's Eve resolution is to return to working out. And so I hope all of you come up with equally ambitious um, New Year's um, resolutions as well. Um, happy holidays to all of you who aren't Christian and Merry Christmas to everyone who is or just celebrates the holiday because they appreciate the spirit of giving and the appreciation for everything that we have. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year to all of you. And I look forward again to talking to all of you soon. Cheers.